When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 372, and today we are talking about books being released on July 26, 2022, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia Elsie Tuttle, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Patricia! Liberty! My, my more purpled friend, how are you today? <laughs> I'm feeling very empurpled. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if that's why, like, it's a color associated with royalty, because it makes you feel, you know, fancy and, you know, special, and they're like, yeah, let's give it to the rich people. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if, if you were to ask my mom, it's because I'm a royal pain in the neck. Oh, so. <laughs> mom. Oh, Mom. Yeah, so Patricia has new purple hair. That's why I was mentioning that. I didn't just, you know, randomly. Just randomly call me purple. Because <laughs> my Barney outfit. No, I, I don't know. Aren't they doing a Barney movie now? I think I heard that the other day. It's pretty wacky. I think I heard that. And when I was, when I was younger, like I was still in like what, I was like in my 20s or late teens when Barney was a thing. So it wasn't for me, but I was for some reason... Barney just irked me so much. Yeah. And I would just, like, mock Barney for no reason. I'm like, he has one row of teeth. He has a (laughs) row of tooth. And just, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know Uh, why I couldn't stand Barney so much, but. Because he was annoying. (laughs) I mean. It came out when I was in high school. And that's, like, my babysitting years, and that's all the kids I babysat wanted to watch. And mm-hmm. I was like, don't you want to watch the Animaniacs? And they were like, Barney! And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. So it was Barney all the time. This is taking a very weird turn. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So yesterday was, like, the greatest day of my life. Oh? Because we have a ruby-throated hummingbird that's been coming to the feeder now, uh, just in the last couple of days. And... Now I get why everyone gets so excited about Tinkerbell. Like, this little thing is just flitting around, and it came to the feeder, like, 12 times, like, outside my office window, and they're beautiful. They're, like, this teal green on the back, the males, and they have this, like, pinkish red throat, and this one hummingbird kept coming back to the feeder. I filmed it a dozen times, and it was amazing, but also, it kept coming to the window, and, like, looking in my office window. And I was like, this is, like, magic. I I finally get why people are, like, so into fairies. Because it was, like, magic. Now, I had to come up with a name for it, so I named it Alan Cummingbird. And (laughs) it's so cute. But also I realized that, one, it's probably not even the same hummingbird every time, you know. (laughs) It's probably, you know. So you can tell the males and the females apart. The females don't have the red throat. And so it's definitely a male. But there might be, like, seven or eight of them. Who knows? And also... I should probably, like, catch it and find it because it keeps looking in my window and now it knows all my passwords. 
So Ooh. it's probably sharing that information, mm. you know, getting on the bird internet. <laughs> on the dark web. <laughs> the dark nest. <laughs> the dark nest. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it was one of the most miraculous things I've ever seen. My husband was like, are you crying? I'm like, why are you not crying? Are you not seeing Someone, I, was, I went on the internet, I was reading about them, and someone calls them the sharks of the sky because it seems like they never rest. But <laughs> they actually do. My friend said, don't they, like, what are they doing landing? Like, I didn't know they landed. I'm like, they do land. I just don't think they land on flowers because it won't support their weight. So when we see pictures of them on nature documentaries, they're always, and you want to see them fluttering. So, but they actually sit and drink and they're very still and they're like the size of a thumb and I'm so in love with them. So that's that's my creature update for today. Um, no cat stories today. My stupid cat was stupid and did stupid things and ended up at the vet and ugh, oh, stupid cats. cat. Oh, cats. <laughs> we were just talking about a bird on the internet. How did we not just make a Twitter joke? Oof, oh. It is it is morning where I am when we're recording right now. <laughs> it's true. The hummingbird probably stole my Twitter password. It's <laughs> tweeting. All kinds of things. Um, I wonder if hummingbirds make noises. I don't actually know if they do. They must make a humming sound, right? Yes, but they're also very, like, talkative. Like, they have oh. these cute little, little chirpy, tweety sounds. Like, yeah, the ones in our neighborhood are sometimes, like, we'll walk under a tree and we hear it uh, before we're ever able to, to see it. That tracks. You know, yeah. cute little sounds. Yeah. Because if they were, like... Excuse me. I'd be like really worried. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> in so our small. in our D and D game, we do have a hummingbird character that has a very deep, like very white voice. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious! Ah, oh, fantasy worlds. Uh, yeah. Speaking of fantasy worlds, we're going to talk about books. But before we do that, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven 
great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, and now it is that time where I remind you that Book Riot is hiring. That's exciting. We are hiring an editorial operations associate. You can come work with us if you love getting into the nitty gritty of behind the scenes work. We are looking for someone to help us keep our metaphorical content trains running smoothly. You'd work with the op-eds team to support editorial and the Book Riot writers. We are committed to building an inclusive workforce and strongly encourage applications from women, individuals with disabilities, and people of color. If you're interested in the job, we are taking applications until August 8th of 2022. You can go to bookriot.com slash join dash us to apply for that job. And now we're going to talk about books. Yay, books. Aw, yeah. And we're going to quickly talk about books because it's 108 in my office. Oof. Yeah. I just, I can't win. <laughs> but here we go. All right. So this is a debut novel that just knocked my socks off. Cannot wait for everyone to read it. It is called Calling for a Blanket Dance by Oscar Hokia. It's a multi-generational story of Ever Jamia Saddle. I looked up that name. I could not find anyone who agreed how to pronounce it, so I'm sorry if that's incorrect. Uh, it's the story of this man, Ever, and his family who live in Oklahoma. Ever is of Cayua, Cherokee, and Mexican descent, and he is torn between his heritages, and he's having a lot of problems with his family, his father is very ill, uh, his mother is trying to take care of him and support the family, his grandmother on one side wants them to move closer to her, his dying grandfather is trying to teach him everything about his heritage before he dies, even if it's not something that maybe he's interested in, and Ever feels like everyone is asking something of him, and he's just trying to discover who he is and who he wants to be on his own. Different chapters in the book are told from different points of view, from different members of his family, and each part of his story is told, like, as he gets older. He starts as a baby at the beginning of the book, and he's a man by the end of the book. And each part, I'm going to make a blanket analogy, because how can I not? It's called, you know, calling for a blanket dance. You know, each part of the story is like a patch and a quilt, and eventually it'll come together and make a blanket. Um, a blanket dance, which I learned, is... A community gathering held to support a family uh, in the community. And like I said, we we're going to watch Ever as he grows up and starts his own family. We see a lot of the history of Native people in the United States, the hardships that they have faced past and present. But it's a beautiful, just unbelievably well-written book about family and history and tradition with a little bit of magic. I, I can't believe this is a debut novel. Um, I feel like I've said that many times now, so there's probably like a whole bookcase full of books that I've said, I can't believe this is a debut novel now. But again, I'm going to say it because it's incredible. And I also feel like it's not getting a lot of buzz, and I think that's that's sad because it's remarkable. I kind of want to read it again, maybe this weekend, because sometimes when I'm reading for work, 
I'm so focused on like absorbing everything in the book. I need to go back and just like let it wash over me again. Uh, and that is definitely one of these books because, oh my goodness, the storytelling in this is incredible. I want to give content warnings for child death, chemical use and abuse, domestic violence, police violence, loss of a loved one, racism, colonization, and genocide. This is the remarkable novel Calling for a Blanket Dance by Oscar Hokia. For my first pick, I have <laughs> I have a heavy read. Um, it's The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy by Raul Perez. So people continue to say it's just a joke when they're called out on something racist that they say. The Souls of White Jokes is an entire book in response to the it's just a joke crowd proving no, it's not just a joke because racist humor is one of the primary tools of white supremacy. A lot of the core arguments in this book can also be applied to other derogatory jokes. And I'm putting the word jokes in air quotes because personally, I have this radical idea that jokes are actually supposed to be funny. So a lot of the core arguments in this book can be applied to transphobic jokes and misogynist jokes and homophobic jokes, etc., but this author is focusing on racist jokes specifically. And with that, I need to give you gigantic content warnings for racism and violence, including police violence. This book has examples of not only incredibly racist jokes, but also some just stomach-turning examples of racist comics and images that have either been printed in white supremacist media or found their way through some politicians or law enforcement emails. The bulk of this book is specific to anti-Black jokes, but there are also many examples of anti-Semitic jokes, anti-Asian jokes, and anti-Latina jokes. Needless to say, this was a very, very difficult read. Reading it meant that there were so many examples of hate speech going into my brain, and my brain doesn't really differentiate between hate speech as an example and actual hate speech. So just FYI, this book can be kind of traumatizing to read, especially if you tend to avoid a bunch of this subject. All of this to say, this book was really hard. And also, it was an incredibly important read. The author is an assistant professor of sociology. And this is a very, like a fairly academic book. So it's a heavy read in a couple different ways. That being said, of course, he spends a fair amount of time calling out other humor studies researchers for being complicit in allowing people to think that racist jokes are harmless. He does not pull any punches, and it's really quite lovely. I love a good academic takedown. And also, I didn't know that humor studies was a thing or even an option. And I don't want to go back to school, but I'm kind of curious. Humor has been proven as something that can bring people together, but racist humor not only brings racist people together, but also ostracizes the groups of people the humor is dumping on. Humor has been used as a tool for producing racial alienation, dehumanization, exclusion, and even violence time and time again. The author lays bare how fascist media draws in more people into their beliefs. 
they recognize if it was just harsh, violent hate, that might scare some of the fence sitters away. But make some racist jokes, some racist memes, do it for the lulls, as they say, and people easily get sucked in. He also covers racist humor in law enforcement and how attempts at mitigating that have failed. He draws very clear lines connecting racist jokes being shared behind the scenes and deliberate racist police violence. The third arena the author unpacks is racist jokes in politics. I tend to avoid people who would be sharing racist jokes, and I knew there was a lot out there about President Obama, but wow, depravity doesn't even begin to cover it. It's it's just so incredibly disgusting. This is such an important book, not only as a window into one of the ways that white supremacy works but also to be used as an opening for people who continue to consume racist, transphobic, homophobic, and all-around lazy and elementary comedy to really examine how white supremacy is showing up in their lives. And yes, the author definitely titled this as a play on W.E.B. Du Bois's essay, The Souls of White Folks, and this author goes over the connections and doesn't force you to just guess in case you haven't read Du Bois. It's The Soul of, of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy by Raul Perez. Well, all right. I'm adding that to my TBR. And also, my next pick is something completely different. We're going to go. <laughs> I'm very, you know, I feel bad almost, you know. It sounds so important. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go back to this now. <laughs> no problem. All right. So for my next pick today, it is Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim, which is coming out in paperback today. And as far as I can tell, we didn't talk about it on the show, which surprises me now because it has received so many amazing reviews. I was looking at it on Goodreads. It has over 30,000 ratings and reviews and an average of 4.29, which seems incredible with that many reviews. Um, but it's so good. It's a retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's The Wild Swans set in an Asian world. And, well, I'm going to go off on like a little tangent here, which is not surprising if you've ever listened to the show. But do you think if Hans Christian Andersen or Shakespeare, like, if we could somehow bring them back and be like, hey, you know, we're still talking about your stuff. Do you think they'd be like, what? Well, first of all, they'd be like, ah, how am I still alive again? But then they'd be like, what? You're still talking about my my stories? Like, Patricia, do you think they would be surprised? Do you think they'd be like, I hated that one. Like, why do you like it? You know, like, or just... you know what? I think it depends on the author because I feel like Billy Shakes would be like, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but Hans Christian Andersen, I don't know. I don't know. It's just... We see these names so frequently. Yeah, it reminds me of there was an episode of Doctor Who where they had uh, Victor Van Gogh and he got in the TARDIS and then they brought him to a modern museum and showed him like everyone still enjoying his paintings like hundreds of years later. And so it reminds me of that. I think people like I think authors might think it unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good episode. That was a good episode. So let me get back to where I was. So I was talking about Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim. Now, in this world, magic exists, but it is forbidden. 
You are not supposed to use it or even have it. Or if you have it, don't let anyone know. And there is a young princess named Shiori, and she has a secret, which I bet you can guess. She can do magic. Like, small-time magic. She can make paper cranes come to life and fly around, and she has to keep the secret to herself. But on the day of her betrothal ceremony, where her father and her stepmother are announcing who she is going to marry because she has no choice in the matter, they find out that she can do magic. Specifically, her stepmother finds out that she can do magic. Now, this is good news for Shiori because it's going to delay the wedding because they can't have their their daughter out there, you know, as a magical being and people finding out. The bad news is that, like in most fairy tales, the stepmother is evil. And she is an evil magical being that nobody knows about. And she decides she's going to get rid of Shiori. And so she banishes her from the kingdom, but also turns her six older brothers into cranes. And it keeps going on. She's not done. She's got all kinds of tricks. She tells Shiori that if she tells anyone about what has happened, if she speaks any words, for each word that she speaks, one of her brothers will die. And then, you know, if that's not enough, she glues a bowl on her head. Like, this, this I'm not, I'm like, okay. You know, she glues a bowl on her head, which is humiliating, as people who have had bowls glued to their head know. And she's turned out of the kingdom. And now she can't talk about what's happened to her. No one knows who she is because they can't recognize her with a bowl on her head. Uh, she's, you know, she's humiliated. She's also uncovered a conspiracy involving the kingdom. And so she's going to have to find help in saving her brothers and saving the kingdom. And ends up enlisting the help of the man she didn't want to marry. It's so fun and dark and magical. I loved the writing. I loved the twists. There's also a dragon land that they visit for a little bit and this really great dragon character, which if I read correctly, uh, we will be seeing more of in the sequel because there is a sequel that's coming out in August. And I love Shiori. She's a fully realized character. Uh, horrible things have happened to her, but she doesn't give up. She stays strong, you know, even though she's like, what the heck? You know, well, there's a bowl on my head. That's not a direct quote. I'm kind of paraphrasing. Um, but I was so invested in the story, and I can't wait to find out what happens next. Uh, like I said, there is a second one. It's called The Dragon's Promise, and it's out on August 30th. I do want to give content warnings for loss of a loved one, animal death, physical abuse, misogyny, classism, self-harm, kidnapping, torture, and violence. This one is Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim. I'm so surprised we hadn't talked about that book before. I know. I remember when it came out last year. Yeah. Well, the thing is that, you know, we have to remember, sometimes I forget that we don't always get everything that we request. Totally. You know, it's like sometimes I'll make requests for things and they'll show up in the mail like the day of. Like, well, it's like, <laughs> thank you. But I wanted to read that ahead of time, you know, or like they'll approve it the day that it comes out. And it's like, again, thank you. But I wanted to talk about it on the show, you know, last week. So it's probably one of those. I just bought it at the store because, yeah. you know, I, I, I buy a lot. Because books. Yeah. <laughs> For my next pick, I have another nonfiction. It's How to Read Now Essays by Elaine Castillo. I expected to enjoy this book going into it, but I did not expect how much I absolutely loved this Book. This book is about reading books and short stories and literature. Yes, of course. 
but it's also about the other kind of reading we do. The reading that we refer to when we use the phrase read the room, when we go to a new place and look around and use what we see or hear or smell or taste or touch to get an understanding of the place we are in. We even read other people this way. Castillo aims to cover all of these types of reading. This book is a series of essays woven together by the common thread of reading. Each essay is personal in its own way, as all the reading we do is personal. You know, I can talk on the show about books that I read, and then you can also read the book. And even if we both like the book, our experiences of it will still be different because of our personal histories and the context in which we read it. Castillo is also Filipinx and from the Bay Area, uh, like I am, and the parts of the book about the U.S. occupation of the Philippines hit me particularly hard, as well as the details around why so many Filipinx people have Spanish last names. Yes, it's because of colonization, but it's even more insulting than I had realized. One of the first essays is titled, Reading Teaches Us Empathy and Other Fictions. The author absolutely drags the idea that some people can learn empathy by reading books by authors of color. Like that they need to read books by people like me so that they can see me as human? That seems suspect. The Unfair expectation that writing by BIPOCs has to teach and coddle and persuade and cater to a white audience while cisgender white authors don't have to do that. They can just write and be enough. So I have a confession. I have never been a part of the Jane Austen fan club for another a uh, number of reasons. I was delighted to see that Castillo covers some of these reasons and points out that to read Austen and ignore the world of Austen, which was in the thick of the transatlantic slave trade, is to blatantly misread Austen. Slavery wasn't only something that happened overseas. Austen, and therefore the Bennets, were contemporaries of Josiah Wedgwood and his famous abolition teapot, Castilla shows that there's so much room to expand the way that folks read Austen in ways that they rarely do. And other authors too, and places and histories, because the histories of colonized spaces are told by the colonizers, as well as the folklore of colonized places. Castillo also makes clear the many ways in which she, in her words, hates Joan Didion's work. So if that is something you don't want to hear critiqued, be warned. The author also talks about the X-Men and Watchmen and films and New Zealand and Charles Perrault, yes, the Cinderella author, and authors I have never heard of, and I ate up every bit of it. Lots of content warnings, racism, sexual assault, including that of children, discussions of transphobia, colonial violence, other violence, and this probably isn't an exhaustive list, but that's what I can remember. 
truly wonderful book. The audiobook is read by the author, and I really enjoyed it that way. I may give it another read before the year is over. It's How to Read Now, Essays by Elaine Castillo. If you haven't read it already, her novel, America is Not the Heart, is amazing. I think I talked about it on the show a few years ago when it came out. It's just fantastic. Also set in the Bay Area. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, but it's funny. So in Berkeley, there's an independent bookstore. It's East Wind Books. It's an, it's an Asian American and Pacific Islander authors bookstore. And in their Instagram stories, they post like, hey, what are you reading now? And so I had responded to their little question like, oh, I just finished How to Read Now by Elaine Castillo. It's out on July 26th. And someone else responded that they just read America is not the heart. I think she has a new book coming up. And so they posted (laughs) our answers one after the other. And they're just like, hey, this person should be the friend of the person in the previous (laughs) story. So yeah, yeah. So now I'm like, oh, gotta, gotta add her other book to my TBR. Yeah, it's really excellent. I think about it still. So those are books out today that we have read. Uh, And now we're going to talk a little bit about some more of today's releases in hardcover and in paperback that we are excited about that we haven't necessarily read. And I am going to kick it off with Nightmare Fuel, The Science of Horror Films by Nina Nesseth. This is from Torah Nightfire, which is just one of my favorite new imprints, the horror imprint of Torah. Uh, They have so many amazing things coming out all the time. This is a pop science look at horror films. Uh, She dissects horror films, obviously, like, technically, and looks at, like, why we get afraid of things and what makes us afraid of things and what happens when we get afraid and... Also, like, why do we like to be scared? Not everybody. Not everyone likes to be scared. Some people like to be scared about some things, but other things. Some people don't like to be scared at all, you know, and what it does to your body when you get scared. And also, she looks at how filmmakers utilize this knowledge when they make films. Like, why they put that jump scare there or, you know, give you a sense of unease. I was watching, reading something recently where there's, like, sounds that they put in horror films that you don't even know are there. Like, you would never be able to pick them out. They're not discernible, really, but also they give you, like, the creeps, and you don't even realize that it's happening, you know, which is pretty cool. I love horror films. I haven't watched very many lately. Um, I was all excited to get the horror the horror streaming channel, which I'm not forgetting the name of. I got it for myself for Christmas a couple of years ago, and then watched, like, three movies, so I canceled. Oh, Shudder, that was it. So I canceled my subscription, but I keep being like, I should get that again. I did talk about a book on the show several years ago, which was similar, called Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear by Margie Kerr, um, in which she actually went and did all kinds of things that terrify a lot of people, like heights and bugs and haunted houses. And I was like, no thank you to all of that. I am not someone who likes being scared like that. Um, But that was also excellent. Uh, And I look forward to reading this one. It is Nightmare Fuel. The Science of Horror Films by Nina Nesseth. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. 
Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what? <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. You'll only cross these blades once in a page-turning new tale of revenge strategy and so many lies. Best-selling Red Tower Books is releasing its next year's will read that will capture your imagination and keep you guessing until the end. May Corlin's Five Broken Blades tells an intricate high-stakes tale of five total strangers united in a plot that will test their strength, wits, and courage. Each has their reasons, all have secrets. But while it's easy to portray a stranger, it's not so simple to stab a friend or a lover, okay, in the back. Now these five blades must choose between vengeance and one another. Pick up Five Broken Blades by Mae Corlin for a thrilling, adventurous tale filled with risk, romance, adventure, and oh, so many lies. The relationships in it are complex and nuanced and involve everything from friends to enemies, found and biological family and lovers and more. Thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publishers of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode. All right, Patricia, what do you have next? So I have... Well, I don't have Skin of the Sea, but the book I'm going to talk about is Skin of the Sea by Natasha Bowen. This book is out in paperback today. It's the first in a series. The next book, Soul of the Deep, is out on September 27th. I have not yet read Skin of the Sea. Well, okay, so I'm listening to it on audiobook and I'm like eight chapters into it, So, but I haven't finished it yet. So when it came out last year and I saw the cover, I practically begged for an arc. The cover is stunning. It's a black mermaid with a blue silver tail and water, just like clear water splashing. She's wearing gold jewelry and looking over her shoulder directly, like directly at the reader. It was marketed as perfect for fans of Children of Blood and Bone and Beasts of Prey, two other books I really enjoyed. This book has major Little Mermaid vibes, but it is incredibly intense. The Orisha Yamoja has created these mermaids, which she refers to as Mamiwata. My understanding of the deity Mamiwata is a bit different, but hey, this book is fantasy. So... These mermaids are tasked with harvesting the souls of the enslaved Africans that are thrown or jump off the slave ships into the oceans. Yumoja will then bless the soul so it can move on into the afterlife. Real dark stuff, y'all. This book is told in first person or first mermaid by Simadeli. 
When a body falls into the ocean from the ship, she swims to it to harvest the soul. Except the person is not dead yet. She is definitely not supposed to be saving a living person, but her other option is just to let the circling sharks tear him apart right there. So, like, that's kind of where I left off in reading the book, and I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of the book. It's out in paperback today. It's Skin of the Sea by Natasha Bowen. All right. <laughs> First mermaid. How cute. <laughs> First mermaid POV. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of something funny that would be... Uh, yeah, I got nothing. No more jokes for that. <laughs> I do want to mention, because I can never pass up an opportunity to mention this, that my favorite short story collection, All the Names They Used for God by Anjali Sachdeva, has a mermaid story in it, and it's my favorite story in the book, and it's so good. Mm. Um, if you like short stories, All the Names They Used for God... It will blow you away. So my other pick for today is Fish Swimming in Dappled Sunlight by Riku Anda and translated by Allison Watts. Anda is the author of The Asawa Murders, which was one of the New York Times notable books of 2020, which somehow I did not read, but you will not be surprised to learn that I did purchase. And it's this book, Fish Swimming in Dappled Sunlight, is set in Tokyo over the course of one night in which two people uh, who are parting ways after a long relationship decide to spend one last night together. But th the reason that their relationship has been failing is because they went on a mountain hike together in which somehow their guide ended up dead. And each one suspects the other of actually harming the guide so they think that they're going to be able to get a confession out of the other person in this one last night that they're going to spend together. So, I've heard from someone who read it that it's pretty messed up, which is, like, Liberty's siren song. You know, all you have to write is, like, pretty messed up on the cover of a jacket, and I will absolutely pick it up. I love pretty messed up books. Um, and so it sounds fantastic. I can't wait to read it. It is Fish Swimming in Dappled Sunlight by Riku Anda and translated by Allison Watts. Is that going to be the name of your memoir? Pretty messed up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's probably already been taken, but I could use probably. it Probably. There's lots, there's lots of things I could use. My memoir, you know, it could be, um, I think I read that. I probably own it. <laughs> There's all kinds of things. <laughs> right. Uh, so for my last book, I have Light from Uncommon Stars by Raika Aoki. This book was maybe my favorite speculative fiction I read last year, and it's out in paperback today, and I am so excited that I get to tell you about it again. I really should reread this one, too. Content warnings up front for racism, specifically anti-Asian racism, transphobia, discussion of suicide, sexism, sexual assault, and abuse. I'm going to be weirdly vague about this book because it's full of surprises and I don't want to ruin the joy of reading it for any of you. It's science fiction and it's fantasy and it's super queer and it's about found family, among other things. It takes place in the San Gabriel Valley in Southern California. I lived in the San Gabriel Valley for seven years, and actually I was living down there when I started writing for Book Riot. The author does a phenomenal job of encapsulating the vibe of the area. 
One set of characters is the Tran family who owns a donut shop. They are actually alien refugees from across the galaxy. We also have Katrina Nguyen, a transgender teen who runs away from an abusive home in the San Francisco Bay Area and ends up in the San Gabriel Valley. She has very little to her name, some clothes, some estrogen, a beat up made in China violin, and does sex work both via webcam and in person to make money to survive. Finally, we have Shizuka Satomi, a woman who had made a deal with the devil for some fame. She played the violin. Now, to escape damnation, she needs to take on seven violin students and deliver their souls to hell. At the start of this book, she has already delivered six. This book has an awkward romance, gorgeous writing about music, descriptions of food that were absolutely mouthwatering, and this isn't even the half of it. I am madly in love with this book, and it's out in paperback today. It's Light from Uncommon Stars by Raika Aoki. All right, and that transitions us nicely into paperback releases. I'm trying not to make these lists like super, super long because I know it's a lot of information, even though at my very core, I want to tell you about every single book that's coming out today, (laughs) just in case it's something that you might be interested in. But I'm going to hold it to these eight today, starting with Noor by Nnedi Okorafor, which is set in a near future Nigeria about a woman named A.O., which she says stands for artificial organism because that's how she feels after having many major and necessary body augmentations. And then something, I haven't read this book, so I don't know what happens, but something bad happens one day when she visits the market and now she is on the run. There's also The Kingdoms by Natasha Pulley, who actually has a book out in hardcover today called The Half-Life of Valerie Kay, which I have not read. Uh, I have read The Kingdoms. It's a 19th century time-twisting alternative history in which the main character, whose name is Joe, wakes up in the French colony of England. Joe doesn't know anything about himself except his name, doesn't know why he's there, and all he has to go on is a postcard of a Scottish lighthouse. There's 56 Days by Katherine Howard. This is one of the first quarantine novels that was out there. I feel like it came out in less than 56 days after the pandemic started. But this one is about a couple who meet just as the quarantine starts. And he suggests that, hey, we should quarantine together. Get to know one another. 56 days later, police find a body in that apartment. Whose is it? What happened? Who knows? Well, you do if you read the end of the book. But I don't know. I can't, and I wouldn't tell you anyway. Next is For Butter or Worse by Erin LaRosa about a cook who is amazingly talented and is hoping to finally hit the big time when she is chosen to be a host on a reality cooking show. Unfortunately, the other host on the show is the world's biggest jerk. So what's going to happen? There's also Not Again, Yarn Jokes. It's from the Real Men (laughs) Knit series. It's by Quana Jackson. And this one is about a fireman whose family owns a knitting shop, and he likes to knit while he waits for his laundry at the laundromat, and one day a little girl comes up to him and is very interested in what he's doing, and it turns out that she is the daughter of his old crush, and suddenly his old crush has been brought back into his life. What's gonna happen? Another romance today, paperback, another paperback original, is Booked on a Feeling by J.C. Lee. 
about a lawyer who is striving for success and instead has a setback and returns home to recover where she runs into her childhood friends and they decide to try to save a failing bookstore together, but also there is some unresolved crushing going on. What's gonna happen? I'm just gonna say that at the end of every blurb for every book now. There's also a couple of great YA novels out in paperback today. There's The Wild Ones by Nafiza Azad about a group of girls with magical powers who must come together to save a boy who helped them in the past. And The Henna Wars by Adiba Jargadar about a teenager whose childhood best friend returns and they end up working together on a school project, but also they may have different feelings for one another now. I love The Henna Wars so much. It's so good. It's so good. So good. Out in paperback. Uh, And that is it for our paperback releases today. So, Patricia, what are you going to read next? What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? (laughs) Could be anything. Um, So, like I mentioned, I'm listening to Skin of the Sea. Mm -hmm. And also, I just got... So, first... Shout out to the publicist for this book I'm going to mention because I sent an email requesting an arc of this book yesterday. It arrived by UPS at 7.30 this morning. Oh my goodness. I have never had a book arrive so fast. And it is Rest is Resistance, a manifesto by Trisha Hersey. It's out October 11th. Trisha Hersey is the mastermind behind the NAP ministry, um, which wants all of us to divulge from hustle culture and grind culture and capitalism and just rest, especially those of us who are Black and our ancestors were treated as capital and their value was in the building of this country. So the Nat Mystery is phenomenal. I love her content online and um, I'm really excited for this book. So how about you, Liberty? What are you reading? Uh, I'm going to start The Survivalist by Kashana Kali, uh, who is a writer. I think she works on the Great North TV show. And this is about a black lawyer who moves in with her new boyfriend and his doomsday prepper roommates. And things aren't going to go well, apparently. And also, Sink, a memoir by Joseph Earl Thomas, uh, which was uh, recommended to me. By the editor who also edited the Becky Cooper book about uh, the unsolved Harvard murder that I recommended last year or the year before. So I'm very, very excited about this. Um, It says here in the blurb for Sync, it is a wrenching and redemptive coming-of-age memoir about the difficulty of growing up in a hazardous home and the glory of finding salvation in geek culture. My heart is already a little broken, and and I can't wait to read this one. This one comes out in February, so... And I also want to read Calling for a Blanket Dance again. And I've started reading all of the Calvin and Hobbes comics again. Ooh. Uh, yeah. They're okay. I-, I know that, like, everyone's like, what? That I just said that, but I don't know. I don't find them as funny as I used to. Yeah, but, I mean, once in a while there's one that's like, yeah, that one yeah. still gets me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there, there's, like, the, a comic that he decides to slide down this hill even though it's 
probably going to result in his death. And at the end, he gets to it, and he's like, my brain is trying to kill me. And I think of that <laughs> almost every day. Like, you know, I'll do something, I'll be like, oh, my brain is trying to kill me. <laughs> I remember one where he's drinking, like, it's like his his third sugary drink of the day and he's like identifying as a hummingbird and <laughs> I am a person that I don't actually really drink soda that much but I drink a lot of like sweet tea and sweet coffee and like other sugary drinks and so definitely living that hummingbird life maybe I should name my hummingbird Kelvin then instead of Alan Cummingbird <laughs> no I think Alan Cummingbird is very good I couldn't remember if there was an S on the end of his name, so I had to look it up. I'm like, please don't have an S. Please don't have an S, because, w- like, Alan Cummings' bird wouldn't be exactly the same. Um, and, and I felt bad because I've read his memoirs, and I could not remember, so I had to look it up. Yeah. I tried to explain to my husband the other day that my brain is like a bucket, and, like, it gets filled up with stuff, like, as I get older, and now my brain has, has topped off. And when something new goes into my brain, it drops something in else and it pushes out. other things out. And also the weight squishes the things at the bottom. So that's why I don't remember a lot about when I was younger and why the things on the top that I know keep getting knocked off. Because, and I can't remember them because new things are falling in there all the time. And like right in the middle of that is like the lyrics to every song I heard from when I was like five until I was 16 years old. <laughs> and that's about it. So, I think it's a pretty good analogy. It works. <laughs> anyway. So, that's our show for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com if you have some hummingbird stories. Uh, you can find us online. Patricia is on Twitter and Instagram at the info file. That's T-H-E-I-N-F-O-P-H-I-L-E. I mostly hang out on Instagram at friends and comes alive. You can find us... Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and if you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever that is and leave a rating or review, it helps other book lovers to find us, and we greatly appreciate it. And a reminder that you can apply for the Editorial Operations Associate job by going to bookriot.com slash join dash us by August 8th. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading! reading.